Our scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come now, and before us is a sacred text that contains the words of life, contains words of warning, words of caution, words of hope. And so we pray that you would come now by your spirit and use this inspired word to do its work in us, that we might receive grace today and that the works of Satan might be crushed even in this room. And so we pray for help because these next moments will be spiritual battle and we pray for your spirit to win the day. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, our journey in the book of Romans is quickly coming to a close. This week and then next week, I'll do a review sermon over the last six verses. And it's hard to think that this book is going to end. It has to end. But in my mind, there's this thought of, is there any kind of life outside of Romans. <laughs> I love this book. My life has been marked by this book. It took me 20 years to preach this book, and it's been a good book for us. The plan in 2016, in case you're wondering, is to go back to the Old Testament. I like to try and do New Testament and then Old Testament, and in January and February, we're going to look at a subject I think that we need to become more familiar with, and that is the matter of lament. We'll be studying the book of Lamentations under this title of Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, trying to learn the language of lament. I don't think that evangelical Christians in 21st century America know well how to lament. I don't think our culture appreciates lament. For those of you who read the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, you know that there was a number of op-ed pieces even over the weekend about is it appropriate to say our thoughts and prayers are with people and can you lament in prayer culturally and what does that sound like, what does that look like? So we're gonna dial into that. And then we're gonna do a topical series on the subject of heaven and then sometime in the mid part of the year we'll jump back into the New Testament with a line-by-line -line study of the book of First Peter, where I want to try and help you understand what it means to be exiles in the world. Last week in Romans 16, we tackled 26 names. We talked about the importance and the variety of relationships in the body of Christ, and I 
encourage you to ask yourself some questions about how you could leverage the relationships of people that are around you and to use them for gospel-centered purposes. We gave you an assignment to stay afterwards last week and linger, get to meet some people, and, and many of you did that, and I heard great reports of, that was really helpful to think about that, and you don't need my permission to do that. You don't need our instruction to connect with one another. Spend some time today, have a great conversation with someone. Come more than just to church to listen and to sing. Come to connect life on life. The point of verses one to 16 was simply that the church should be a place filled with people who are connected together by the gospel, and when that happens, there's nothing more attractive or more compelling than the church. A beautiful and healthy church is unique and special. However, that can go south really, really quickly. An entire church, a little enclave, a Sunday school class, a small group, circle of friends, can easily spoil the beauty of a unified church. I am sure that many of you have seen that happen. Maybe you were a part of that. Maybe the reason you're here is because of that. Maybe you're back here because you felt that even within this own congregation. Or maybe you've never seen that before. The fact of the matter is a healthy group of people can quickly implode. In fact, it's a miracle whenever sinful human beings get along. If you have a family meal today and everyone's laughing and you're having a great time and no one says anything sinful, you ought to just back away from that table and go, that was amazing. (laughs) Hang out with some family and friends that you don't see but once or twice a year and, you know, everything goes well, you ought to just get in the car and say, thank God that was a miracle. Because it's more often than not your Uncle Bob says something really weird And you just think, could someone give the brother some Benadryl or something and have him just sleep for the next four days? That's that's more often the case than not. So Romans 16, 17 to 20 then takes this beautiful image of the church that is filled with these glorious relationships and now Paul gives some final instructions. After a lengthy list of names, of people that Paul really loves, he then warns them. He warns them that Satan and sin and deceivers can collude in order to destroy the church. Therefore, Paul wants them to stay vigilant and then to long for the ultimate day when Christ will return and there will be no more division. There'll be no more vigilance needed in regards to sin and temptation and disunity. He will unite all things to himself and he will say to the devil and all demons and all deceivers, you're done. This is my world and it'll never change. So there's four instructions in this text at the end of the book of Romans. Four instructions. Let's hear what Paul says to the church at Rome and what does he say to us? Instruction number one. What are we to avoid? We're to avoid divisive deceivers. The shift in verse 17 is dramatic and startling. 
The wonderful list that we just heard last week with these affectionate titles and these names, you could almost hear kumbaya in the background as Paul is rehearsing these names. Suddenly the tone shifts and it shifts towards this twofold pastoral appeal regarding the kind of people who could shatter the harmony of the church. This is one of the things I love about the Apostle Paul. He lives in the world that I live. He, he's, a real, he's, not, he's not writing a theological tome. He's not writing a theoretical book on how you live life. He, he, he loves big thoughts of God, and he also knows how to deal with real people. He knows that you could have an amazing time of unity only to have just the next moment it go incredibly poorly. He's seen this in his own life. He's seen it personally. For instance, there's a man in the New Testament named Demas in, Coloss- in the church of Colossae in the letter to Colossians and the book of Philemon. He's listed as one of the people who are with Paul. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, we read that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. So he knows what can happen. Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. In particular, what Paul's concern is, is for people who would be deceiving and divisive. He wants the Roman Christians to be on guard against these deceptive deceivers because these kind of people are dangerous. So he says, I appeal to you, brothers. This is no small statement, I appeal to you. We've heard this before in the book of Romans, like Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's a significant statement. Or Romans chapter 15 and verse 30 where he says, I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers. So when he makes this final appeal, this is a significant statement and he wants for them to be vigilant as they consider their relationships with one another, as they enjoy the harmony that they've had as a church, he wants for them to know that that harmony can also be the setting for terrible destruction. So if you've got a great small group going or a wonderful Sunday school class, got this group of friends and you just enjoy one another, don't don't take that for granted. That's a beautiful thing, but you need to know at any moment that thing can completely upend. And therefore he's appealing for them to do two things. First, to watch out for that tendency, to watch out for those who would come in and would become these divisive deceivers. And then secondly, the action point is to avoid those kind of people. So let's look at each of these appeals. First, watch out for these people. That word watch out means to mark or to notice. It it means that you see someone and you register in your mind something unique about them. In this context, it's uniquely negative. In other passages, it's uniquely positive. For instance, Philippians 3.17, Paul uses the same word positively. 
It sounds like this. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So that, that phrase, keep your eyes, same Greek word. The idea is this, that positively there are people in our lives that we have and we see how they conduct themselves. Maybe you, you see how they do marriage or you see how they do singleness or you see how they do grandparenting and you, you see how they conduct themselves at business and, and how they leverage the gospel or rather leverage their work for the sake of the gospel and you see them and you're like, I wanna be like them. There's nothing wrong with that. Like I wanna be like that person. Like when I'm in a, a situation, I, I have these particular people who I think, now how would so-and-so respond in this moment? What would, what would they do? If their kids asked them that question, what would they say? I've marked them. But here it's used negatively. The church is to be aware, to have sort of the radar up because of the things that have been happening in our city over the last number of months. My radar is up in my neighborhood. I see a car that I don't recognize, a person walking around. I'm, 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 I'm gonna ask, can I help you? Or what are you, what's going on? My, my, my eyes look at my neighborhood and our city differently. I'm going to watch out. What are they to watch out for? He says to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. So they're watched for two things, divisive people and those who lay stumbling blocks or obstacles in front of others. What do we mean by divisiveness? Well, the word dissension is really the creation of factions and the creation of strife between people. Now, dissension is more than just humble, honest disagreement. There's nothing wrong with saying, I just, I don't agree. That's, or humbly, I just, that's, I'm not where you're at. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the church needs that humble, honest disagreement. What the idea is, is this dissension which leads to discord or being disagreeable, not just disagreeing. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some people that they're just disagreeable about everything. What's interesting, though, is that Galatians 5, when it lists the work of the flesh, the works of the flesh, the kind of characteristic pattern of a person's life, that means if you act like this consistently over the bulk of your lifetime, there's no way you're a follower of Jesus. I mean, we throw things, sexual immorality and that sorts in that list, and certainly it is on that list, but do you know dissension is also on that list? There's something about the spirit, the tone, the heart of somebody who uses disagreement in order to advance a self-centered agenda. We'll talk more about that in terms of motives in a moment. So the first thing he warns about is those who would create division. The second thing he warns about is those who would create stumbling blocks. And as we studied Romans 14 and 15, we saw that stumbling blocks are the issues that cause substantial harm to a person's faith. Meaning that it's an issue that comes up that would make them wonder, look, is Christianity even real? Or do I want to still be a Christian if that's what's going to happen? In some cases, it's a particular doctrine or a truth, a false teaching that sneaks in. But more often than not, it's the implication of that in people's lives as they see how disobedience begins to take root and, and factions and division begins to take place that somebody says, man, this is how Christians live. I don't want anything to do with that. Take your Christianity. I'm out of here. When Paul says that 
These stumbling blocks are contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. It not only means contrary to the gospel that you've been taught, but contrary to the gospel living that you've been taught because Paul often links faith and obedience in the book of Romans. He even indicates that the aim of the gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith. So Paul is calling for this church to watch out for those who in their tone or in their teaching would create unnecessary divisions and end up bringing about spiritual disaster upon the church. And so the church is to be on guard against those who would wreak havoc in this way in how they foment divisiveness in their false teaching and relational schism. Now what does he say they're to do? The first appeal is to watch out. The second appeal is to avoid them. Paul does not want the Roman Christians to be affected by this divisive spirit or this false teaching, and so he instructs them to prevent the deceiver from exerting his or her influence. And the best way to do that is to avoid them. Do not give them an audience. Have nothing to do with them. Now, does that strike you as odd? You know, sometimes in the name of loving our enemies or confronting believers, we can forget that the Bible does make provision for the kind of response that just simply avoids the person. Or you just don't put them in a position to do their deceiving work anymore and don't allow yourself or others to be a part of their manipulative schemes. A couple of the places where the Bible talks this way, 1 Corinthians 5, I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. In that context, it's probably because of a church discipline situation that's been presented. And then in Titus, Paul says this, as for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So it might seem surprising at first, but there is a time and a place where the right remedy or the, the wise move is to no longer allow this particular person to have their infectious effect on a group of people by their views, their words, their attitude, or their tone. Sometimes it's not only appropriate to avoid contact with that person, but it's also appropriate to not allow others to have contact. The problem with divisiveness is it's so sneaky and subtle. In fact, verse 18 tells us what's going on underneath. Notice just how deceptive it is. He says, first, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. So we see two things here. That first, it has the appearance that they're serving Jesus. So they're in the context of some sort of ministry model, or they're, they're, they're presenting themselves as though they're really doing the Lord's work. But the second thing is, is we realize that, no, these deceptive deceivers are not serving Christ. They're actually serving their own selves, their own appetites, which is really a Another way of saying that they're serving their own self-centered desires. 
So they're, they're using the ministry, they're using the audience of the church in order to serve themselves, not serve Jesus. Third, they manipulate through words and specifically through smooth talk and flattery. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The, the result is that they are then successful in deceiving those who are naive. Those who hear their words and they think, yeah, that's right. I always wondered about that. I, I, I never thought of it that way, but I, I kind of agree with you. In fact, I know a couple other people who might agree with you as well. Let's form our own little Facebook page and We'll call ourselves the haters, and you know, we'll, just, we'll just get together and we'll talk about things. The reason why these deceivers are to be avoided is because of the subtlety of their actions. It looks like they're serving Jesus, but they are, in fact, not. Their words sound encouraging and they sound convincing, and they are most effective with those who really don't know what they're dealing with, people who hear their words and go, yeah, that's right. So what are, we, what are we to make of this instruction by the Apostle Paul? Let me give you three just pastoral applications. The first is this. Church, never take for granted the beauty of unity in the body of Christ. Don't ever, ever, ever take that for granted. And be aware of the potential for false teaching or for people with self-centered motives to make a mess of the church. Just be aware of it in you and in people around you. Never take unity for granted and don't ever stop realizing that this whole thing could implode at any moment if sin, the devil, and our self-centered hearts have their way. Secondly, Take note of the description of divisive deceivers and be sure that you never become one of those kind of people. Having dealt with, the, having dealt with divisive people in my own pastoral ministry, it's remarkable that they are absolutely convinced that they're right and they are clueless about the damage that they do. Don't be like that. Be careful when your issue gets to be so prominent in your mind that you don't care what happens or who's hurt or what effect it has on the church and you begin to lose all moorings. Like this becomes the singular issue in the forefront of your mind. Be careful, you're on a path. Third, in some cases the best remedy to deal with divisiveness is to distance yourself from it or him or her. Deception and Divisiveness are dangerous enough that it warrants avoidance. There are some of you who may need to have this conversation with a friend at some point in time and say, look, I love you, and if you keep talking like that, we're not gonna be hanging around together anymore. Like, I'm not, I'm not gonna sit here and listen to this filth coming out of your mouth about this divisive spirit. Oh, it sounds all flattery, but brother, this is, this is, like, this is deceptive and deceiving. You need to hit that hard and say, and if it doesn't stop, I'm telling you, we're not going to coffee anymore. And for that matter, if this keeps coming up in our small group, I'm going to ask you to not come anymore because this is not helpful. This isn't. If you want to find a way to deal with it, let's deal with it. But this model, this method, mm -mm, we're not doing that. And as a result, it's going to affect our friendship because the reality of what happens is with divisive people, the fact that no one stands up and calls it, no one says, hey, this is going to cost you, it seems to embolden them in their divisiveness. Ray Ortland, senior pastor of Emmanuel Church, provides a 
a really insightful game plan of how to become a divisive person in your church. He writes this from experience. The blog is entitled, How to Rescue Your Church in Three Weeks. Here's what he says, week one. Walk into church this Sunday and think about how long you've been a member and how much you've sacrificed and how underappreciated you really are. Take note of every way you're dissatisfied with your church now. Take note of everyone who displeases you. Take note of all the new people whose presence is changing your church. And then meet for coffee next week with another member and share your heart. <laughs> Discuss how much your church is changing, how you and others are being left out, and ask your friend or who, who else in the church has concerns and agree together that you must pray about it. Week two. Send an email to a few concerned members. Inform them that a groundswell of grievance is surfacing in your church. Problems have gone unaddressed for too long and ask them to keep the matter to themselves for the sake of the body. As complaints come in, form them into a petition and demand an accounting from the leaders of the church. Circulate the petition quietly. And be sure to proceed in a way that conforms to your church constitution so that your petition is procedurally correct. Week three. With the growing moral fervor, ill-defined but powerful, when it now reaches critical mass, confront the elders with your demands. Inform them of all the woundedness in the church, which leaves you no choice but to put your petition forward. Inform them, inform them that for the sake of reconciliation, the concerns of the body must be satisfied. And whatever happens from this point on, you have won. You have changed the subject in your church from gospel advance to your own negativity, and to some degree, you will get your way. Your church will need several years to recover. But at any future time, you can do it all again and keep your church exactly where you want it, because it only takes three weeks. What's sobering about that article is it's so familiar, and so deceptive. See, part of the reason we need the book of Romans is to keep connecting us to the gospel. Remember the gospel, remember the gospel. We also need the gospel to remind us who we really are. Remember, you are a wicked, awful sinner. Your heart can go the wrong way at any moment. We also need this book to remind us about the importance of the relationships in the body that we share. And therefore, dear church, watch out for divisiveness or false teaching that could take root in a brother or a sister or could take root in you. Look out for divisive Deceivers, that's Paul's admonition. Here's the second thing. He then instructs them and us to be innocent in evil actions. Verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you and want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So Paul takes the language of like innocence and naivete and he pulls that forward now into a pastoral command. He's excited for them to experience the beauty of what it is that they could become. He wants their obedience to continue. He says, for your obedience is known to all. So I rejoice over you. Be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. What does that mean? Well, the church had a reputation, and Paul was 
really proud of it in all the right sense of that word. It made him happy to hear about the Roman church, these house churches, and how they were marked by obedience. So that made him happy, and it should, and it should make your, you happy when your church, when our church is filled with obedience and unity. And frankly, if you've grown up in an environment where the most of your spiritual life has been spent in really solid, healthy, vibrant, unified, doctrinally sound, and strong, spiritually-minded church, churches, you ought to thank God for that. You ought to rejoice in the heritage that you've been given, and yet you've been blessed to see the beautiful reality of what the church can be, because that has not been everyone's experience in this room. And I could line up many, many people who struggle even now because of the horror story of a church that was a train wreck in terms of unity or obedience. Some of you are still trying to recover from that, still trying to trust leadership, still trying to walk into a church building and like, is it okay to be happy in here? Is it okay to enjoy this? Because it makes me nervous because the last time I got excited about the church, it blew up in my face. He wants that reputation to continue. He wants them to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. He's calling them here for discernment. You and I need discernment. Paul called this church to have discernment. And the reason they they need it, the reason we need it, is because the charm and the pressure of the deceivers is that they offer to people something that those people think they don't have. The power of the deception is you're missing out or you don't want to be left behind or there's a little more mature way to think about that and this fear of missing out is really the essence of temptation and it's the essence of the deceiver's ways, whether it's Satan himself, the demons, or whether it's an individual who's doing the devil's bidding, knowingly or unknowingly. Just think, for instance, of the fear of missing out that was offered to Adam and Eve. When Eve is looking at the fruit in the tree in the middle of the garden, Satan is suggesting to her that you won't die. God knows that when you eat of the fruit, you will be like him. And so instantly the temptation is this. Do I want to stay where I am, or am I missing out on something more? And that's the essence of the lure of temptation. And then what happened? After she ate and Adam ate, they fell. And suddenly, what were they wise in then? Oh, they were wise in their sin. They were wise in their nakedness. They were wise in their separation from God. They were wise in the life outside the garden. They were wise in regards to death. They were wise in death, and they were innocent of righteousness. So, if Adam and Eve could speak they would tell you, we were afraid of missing out, and now we're missing out, ultimately, when we saw sin come into the world. We should look at the story of Adam and Eve and covet, in the right sense, their innocence. Would you say now that Adam and Eve missed out prior to eating the forbidden fruit? You see, there are some things in life where it's not only wise, but it's the better choice to be marked by being wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. So do you, do you value what is good? Do you love what is good? Or does the fear of missing out push you towards things 
that when you get there, it's like, this was a terrible decision. Is your radar up for the deceitfulness of sin and this this trap of how the enemy presents things to us? Do you think about what is good? Do you fill your mind with what is good? Do you put in practice what is good? Are you wise in what is good? Let's be the kind of people who are innocent in regards to evil and wise in regards to good. Paul says, let your obedience still be known. I'm so happy that you are a godly, gracious people, and I want that to continue in your life and in your legacy. So therefore, be a wise people in regards to good and innocent in regards to evil. Third, what do we hope for? What we hope for in verse 20 is the defeat of Satan. See what Paul does is talks about this division, then he gets to the motive, then he tells them what he really wants them to do, kind of the put on of the put off of being on guard, so put on this idea of obedience and being innocent in regards to evil, and now he gets down to the, really the ultimate source of all deception and the ultimate source of all sin in the world. And verse 20 is a rare text. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a great verse. What is Paul saying there? He's saying that we Long for the day when Christ deals with Satan once and for all. As we look at the brokenness of the world, we look at the sinfulness of our own souls, as we deal with our own temptations in the world, as we see the challenges related to the influence of deception and the the effect of disunity in the body of Christ, the believer who loves Jesus and is drunk deeply of God's grace, looks at all of this and says, Lord Jesus, would you come and say, enough, enough. The works of darkness be done. We long for the final verdict when deception and divisiveness are no more. Any believer who has lived in the midst of a broken world and seen the way that sin destroys and deceives and decimates people's lives will resonate with this prayer. May the God of peace crush Satan underneath our feet. Anyone who's had a front seat on the devastation of sin in their life or in the life of another longs for Romans 16, 20 to be true. Parents who long for Satan's works in their son or daughter's life to be crushed. Young people who long for Satan's works in their own souls to be no more. To look at a city and a world so filled with war and chaos and crime and all measure of brokenness and for Christ finally to come and say the devil, his demons, and all deceivers are now contained and this world belongs to me. I long for Christ to do that. You've watched a friend throw away their life, cycle through problem after problem after problem after problem. This verse resonates with your soul because you want the God of peace 
to come. That word peace, the word shalom in the Hebrew Old Testament, that's what the Garden of Eden was characterized, and it's what will eventually characterize the new heavens and the new earth. And Advent is a season where we celebrate the coming of the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9 says this, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And of his increase of that government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, we long for the day when Christ comes and says, this world belongs to me. The devil and all who are in his dominion are now contained for all of eternity, and Christ rules on the earth, and there is no more brokenness, no more evil, no more waywardness, and no longer any deception. The Garden of Eden and that temptation never, ever, 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 ever happens again. This idea of crushing Satan under your feet has roots all the way in Genesis 3, where the deceiver was, deceiver was told that his days were numbered, that there's a clock counting down, and God owns and holds that clock in his hand, that there was coming a day when God would deal with the devil once and for all. No doubt, Paul had seen the effects, as you have as well as I have. You've seen the effects of the devil's work in the world, and he even bore the marks of Satan's works Satan's works even in his own body, and he, like us, longs for the day when the risen, resurrected Christ says no more. When I look around at the world, and the older I get, the more I find myself praying, come, Lord Jesus, come. And not just to rescue me and get me out of here and lead me to heaven. I, I mean that at one level, but I mean even more. Come and make right what's wrong. Come and settle all accounts once and for all. Come and let the world know this is not the way it's supposed to be. Take all addictions and take wrong desires and things that are so wrong in the present reality of humanity and make them all, unite them all in the context of who and what you are and let righteousness reign on the earth and let your grace flow like a mighty river over this entire world that you have made. That's what I long for. The definitive, eternal, and sin-cleansing verdict of Christ as king. Finally, he says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is more than just a benediction. Paul is pinning their hopes for their past, their present, and their future on the future power and the present power of God's grace in and through the person and work of Jesus. What, what do we mean by grace? I'm sure everyone in this room is familiar with that word in its concept, but you may not understand what it actually means. Grace means the unmerited favor of God that comes to those who put their faith in Jesus. It means that God gives you forgiveness of your sins when you trust in Christ. To be a Christian means that you've received grace because you've trusted in Jesus. Grace also is the spiritual power given to us through Christ that not only makes us forgiven, but also creates within us a new heart and secures our eternal destiny, such that grace is what a believer lives by every single day of his or her life. We live in a broken and fallen world, and it's grace whose promise you trust in when you are tempted, when the devil 
or your flesh says you're missing out. Grace would say you got everything you need in Christ. When the devil or your own soul condemns you with all the things you've done, you remember the gracious promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Grace is what you pray to invade the hearts of people who are believing the, uh, the lies of the enemy. Grace is what you hope for as you look towards a dark future and you wonder, how are we gonna make it in 2016? You know how you're gonna make it in 2016? You're gonna drink deeply of God's grace every single day. You can believe in and you can trust in God's grace and the beautiful hope that's offered here through the gospel of God's grace and through the resurrected Christ is this, that no matter what happens to you or what befalls you or what takes place in your lifetime, God never, ever, ever abandons you. His grace never runs out and he always supplies exactly how much grace you need for everything that you face. You never lack one ounce of grace to make it every single day. So when the devil or your own flesh tells you God has abandoned you, he's forgotten about you, he has given you more than you can bear, you need to return back to this beautiful promise that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Some of you this year will learn that you have cancer. You just don't know it yet. And when that diagnosis comes, you're gonna be able to say, Lord, your grace is with me. There's gonna be some people this time next year that are not gonna be here. The Lord's gonna call you home. And those who'll be left with empty seats at a table will have wounds of their hearts healed because of the beauty of God's grace. Everything one day that doesn't fit with grace will be contained, will be destroyed, and will be defeated, and the effect will be that the reign of Christ will mean the rule of grace. And in the interim, we drink deeply of this wonderful provision. So what do we do now? You know what we do? We work really, really hard to build the unity of the body of Christ in the context of loving relationships. We love each other. We figure out what it means to be the church together. We, we platform the gospel in how we relate to one another and care for one another in the context of our loving relationships with one another. We get to know one another. We connect with one another. We take harmony and obedience and unity and we, we prize it and we, we, we never take it for granted. And it also means that we keep careful watch over ourselves and one another for teachings or attitudes that are unbiblical or somehow could be used by the enemy. We watch out for a divisive spirit that can easily destroy the body of Christ. And as we look at the world that's broken, we let it move us to tears. And when we see the lies that are circulated in the very air that we breathe, we lament over the problem of sin in the world and in all of us, and we pour out our, our lives 
and to others, hoping to find any way to bring God's grace into the world because we know that God is always with us, that the grace of Christ is always with us. And therefore, we pray with expectancy in the future and with the longing hope even now. We long for the day when the God of peace will crush Satan underneath our feet. Even now, you can pray, Romans 16, 20, God, crush the works of the devil in, and you fill in that blank. You got somebody in your world who's trapped, someone in your sphere of influence who's stuck under the sway and swoon of the devil's lives and of his deception, you ought to pray Romans 16, 20. God, crush the works of Satan in so-and-so. Maybe it's in your own soul. The 2016 needs to be the year you get free, and you're like, look, I'm done. Crush the works of these things in my life. Crush Satan's work underneath my feet. I want it not just in the future, which it will happen one day, but I want a taste of that now. I want to see my brother, my sister, my own soul freed from the wicked, deceptive lies of the enemy. So while looking humbly at ourselves and tearfully at the brokenness of the world, we need to pray, God, crush the works of Satan and do it now, do it now. Father in heaven, we pray that you would now by your spirit empower what we do in these next few moments. We pray for your grace to fill us and to move us and to encourage us. Give us faith, oh God, to believe. What we're gonna do as we close the service is we're gonna provide you an opportunity to respond and our elders, some of our pastors, some of our prayer folks are gonna be up here at the front. And here's what I wanna do at the end of Romans as we're drawing this book to a close. If that prayer, God, crush the works of Satan underneath our feet, if that resonates with your soul and you have somebody in your mind and heart who you would just love for that to happen over the holiday season or in 2016, or maybe it's you, what I want you to do is to step out from where you are and just come here to the front and I want you to kneel and you're just gonna come, I'm gonna read this verse over and over and over as a confession and you just come and kneel Then our elders and pastors are gonna make their way through as you're praying, they're just gonna pray for you and that's how we're gonna end, just in this humble, contrite position of God, I'm here kneeling saying, I want the works of Satan to be crushed underneath my feet. And so, music's playing, our elders and pastors are coming, why don't you come and kneel and just say, God, I want the works of Satan to be crushed. Those folks will get out of the way if you're in the middle, you're way up in the stadium seating. If your heart resonates with this, you just come and say, God, I want you to crush the works of Satan. Listen as I read this verse over and over. The God of peace 
will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And so the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And so the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And so the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. For those of you who are kneeling here, there's a, a name, there's a story that's behind all of what represents your coming this morning. And what I'd like to do is all together at once, if it's appropriate, I want you to name the name of the person that you're kneeling here for, and we're gonna say it all together. If it's not appropriate for any number of reasons, you can just remain silent, but just as our statement that God, this is a, a problem and a need that's got real people and real stories and real issues, and so we just wanna say the name of the person. On the count of three, out loud, all together at once, say the name. One, two, three, the name. So many names, Lord. And so for those names, may the God of peace crush Satan underneath our feet. We pray against the sins that wreak such havoc in people's lives. We pray against things that create division and pain and tears and mistrust and the breakage of covenants. We pray for the Spirit of God to move and use even these people, Lord, who've come to be your instruments of grace in the world. So the God of peace, please crush the works of Satan under our feet soon, and even so, come Lord Jesus and reclaim what belongs to you. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, here's how we're gonna end our service today. In a moment, I'm just gonna pray and music's gonna continue to play and you can just make your way quietly out. Some of you may have a, <clears throat> excuse me, a friend up here, guy or girl in your small group, you just may want to grab them, hug them, tell them you care for them and that you're going to pray. And so don't leave here quickly if there are things that God still needs to do. If you're here and you need someone to pray with and there's a lot of people and our elders have not been able to get to all of you, obviously there'll be some folks afterwards who'd love just to linger and pray for you. 
And so, O risen Christ, we thank you that the victory is yours and to you belongs glory and honor and dominion and power for you created all things and all things belong to you, including this world and the people whose names are on the hearts of those who are kneeling here today. And we say, Lord Jesus, would you move, please? And would you create new appetites, new longings, spiritual movement in the hearts of these who have been named by those who are kneeling. And we ask this because we're a needy people and our world is broken. And we long for the day when you make it right. And we pray this all in Jesus' name.